All right, tonight we are looking at salvation and the modern versions. So you're going to want to get your Bibles out. And if you don't have a Bible with you, look at the chair in front of you. There should be a Bible underneath it. And uh, we're going to be comparing some things. We're going to start with Psalm 12. Open your Bibles to Psalm 12. And I have it printed there or displayed on the screen for you, but I want you to see it. Look at Psalm 12 and look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Then look at verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So in order to be a Christian church or to hold Christian doctrine, you have to believe that God inspired his word and that the the technical terms are the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. That is, that God inspired the words, and that's the verbal, and then plenary is all of them that God inspired all of his words. That's to be a Christian. That's, if you don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, then you're not orthodox, you're not holding to orthodox Christian teaching, orthodox Christian theology. But the Bible teaches more than the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture because there are a lot of groups, a lot of churches, a lot of organizations that if you look at their statement of faith, they believe that God inspired his word in the original autographs. That's what they say. An autograph, that's the original manuscripts. That's, what they, that's where they wrote it down. So that statement that I believe that the Bible was inspired in the original autographs, if that's your complete statement about the inspiration of Scripture, then what you're really saying is I believe in nothing because they don't exist. This, and this is something that you really need to understand. No one has ever seen a complete collection of the original autographs. The original autographs have never been bound together in one place. No one has ever seen that. So when you say, if that's the extent of your position on the scriptures, you are really saying, I believe in nothing. So that is not enough of a position in this area of the scriptures. We have to believe in more than the verbal plenary inspiration of scriptures. Again, because they've never been bound together. Those originals have never been bound together in one place. Let me give you some examples of that. No one other than Moses has ever seen the original Ten Commandments because he destroyed them. Then the first copy of Jeremiah, the king took it and cut it up with his penknife and threw it in the fire. No one's ever seen an original copy of the book of Jeremiah. Here's the good news. God remembered what he wrote. So with the Ten Commandments, he wrote it again. With the book of Jeremiah, he wrote the same thing, and then he added other things to it, the Bible says. So that book of Jeremiah that he added other things to, do you know what happened to that? That was thrown in the Euphrates River. No one has ever seen an original copy of the book of Jeremiah, and neither have they seen the second writing of the book of Jeremiah. The good news is God remembered what he wrote, And he promised to preserve those words. 
So the first thing that we see here in our text is that the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. They are different. The Bible is different than other literature. In another setting, I'm going to, my plan is to bring you um, some information about how did the modern Bibles happen? What was the goal behind these modern Bibles? There's a man named Constantine von Tischendorf, and I have a book that he published in 1869 where he says it's time for a new Bible. We need to, I, he, he didn't like the text that our Bible, the original Greek that our Bible, New Testament comes from. So he said, what I set out to do was to find manuscripts that go along with the text that I want to establish. So he found one and changed the entire New Testament based on the one that he found. And what he was trying to do was to create a new thing. Now, how many of you think that maybe we had the Bible before 1869? How many of you think that it's possible that we had the Bible before then? So that gives you an understanding. And here's the problem. They wanted, their goal was to take these new scientific methods that they had used for studying history and apply that to the scriptures. And they wanted to treat the Bible like any other book. Is the Bible like any other book? No, the, the words of God are pure words. The words of man are not pure words. They must be sinful unless we are quoting the words from Scripture. The words of the Lord are pure words. Not only are they pure words, it says this in Psalm 119, 140, and I've got it on the screen for you. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. You can count on them. They are pure words, no errors, only perfection. How many of you really believe that, that the words of God are pure? No errors. So what happens, now we have a conversation. If you believe the Bible is perfect, that the words are pure, that there are no errors in the Scripture, and then you have two books that both claim to be the Word of God, and they say two different things, can they both be the pure, preserved words of God? Recently, I was in a conversation with a college professor and he likes to, he, he claims to believe the King James Bible, but he likes to read along with his 1960 Reina Valera Spanish Bible. He works in a Spanish ministry as well. And so I talked to him about that. I said, have you noticed that there are differences between your 1960 Spanish Bible and the King James Bible, beyond the obvious of a different language? You notice that the words are different. He said, yes, I do notice some differences. I said, so let me ask you this, which one's the Word of God? He said, well, they both are. They both are. So the 1960 Spanish is basically an NIV, a, a New International Version. It has the same underlying text, and the, it's, it's a Spanish translation similar to the, the NIV. That demonstrated to me either that this man I was talking to doesn't have any idea what he's talking about, or he's a liar. Those are the only two options. Because if you have two books that both claim to be the Word of God and they say different things and completely different things in many places, they cannot both be the Word of God. Now, here's the idea that they have. What they'll say is, well, there are many different ways that you can translate a text, and it'll be fine. Or they'll say, well, we have found manuscripts that are better than the manuscripts that your Bible was translated from, so we need to change it. Well, either God inspired and preserved His words, or he did not. Either they're pure or they're corrupt. 
You can't have either way. You know, it, it's not, was it, what was it, 99 and how many 100s? What is it? The ivory soap. What was that? Yes, whatever that is. And when I was a kid, what I used to like to do is get that big old bar of ivory soap and carve it into a little boat and float it in the bathtub. And my mom got tired of me cutting up her bars of soap. But anyway, the Bible is not 99 and 66 one-hundredths, whatever that was, pure. The Bible is 100% pure. It is, it's either pure or it's not. And so either the words are pure and preserved or they are not. Preserved words, and we see that in verse 7, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let me read to you the way that a modern translation would, trans, would translate that passage. I'm always amazed at how modern translators change the text to fit what they believe. So let me read this to you from the ESV. How many of you know that ESV is the very popular Bible? Many people are using it today. So let me read this to you. Read along in your Bible. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Is that different? Is it very different? It's a different statement. It's a different promise. So here's the problem that we run into in this conversation about the Bible. Remember where we started. Some people believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the originals. But there's never a conversation about the preservation of those originals. If God didn't preserve them, why should I believe that he inspired them in the first place? But I believe that he did preserve them. He promised to preserve them, and he did it. So not only are they pure words, but they are preserved words. God has supernaturally preserved his words so that you may hold them in your hands. And when you read them, you can rest in them, trust them, and obey them. Isn't that a blessing? You can actually have God's word in your hands. We spend, when I prepare a sermon, I spend zero time trying to figure out whether or not that text is genuine. I trust it. I believe it. And I will never stand up here and say when we read a verse, well, that shouldn't be in your Bible. That's not found in the best manuscripts. A better translation would be, no, we're not going to do that here. We believe that God has preserved his words. Not only are they pure and preserved, but they're permanent. Psalm 119.89 says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So here's the argument that you get from people who do not believe in a preserved word. They say, yes, they are preserved in heaven, but there's no place where they're preserved on earth. Well, what good is that? Jesus said, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word of God. If you don't have every word of God, then you, can't, then you can't live. The Bible says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. If we don't have the word of God, we can't be born again. That's what the Bible says. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Let me be very clear here. I'm not saying you have to have a King James Bible to be saved. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we must at least have the verses on salvation in order to be saved. And here's the good news. God gave us more than that. 
He gave us everything that we need. How do I know that? Because the Bible says he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And we have to have the word of God to have that. They're permanent words. Psalm 119, 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning. And what are those next two words? And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth how long? Forever. None of them are lost. We're going to get to some differences in the modern translations between the King James Bible and the modern translations on the subject of the gospel. How many of you think that the gospel is something we ought to care about? Salvation is something that we ought to care about. Well, God has preserved these things. When the Bible talks about salvation, these are righteous judgments, and the Bible says they endure forever. We have them. He's given them to us. They are permanent words. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. One of the fun things for me about coming to Grace Baptist was when I was in fourth grade, I chose this verse, Isaiah 40, verse 8, as my life's verse. And it wasn't really that I was super spiritual. It was that there was a lady named Sue Gerard, and her husband, Al Gerard, would come and preach at our church, and I just thought she was the prettiest thing I had ever seen. And she would write these scripture songs and sing them, and she wrote a song about this verse, and it was so pretty to me, I said, that's going to be the verse that I pick. That's the verse that I'm going to like. And it's interesting how God has used this verse in my life. When I came to Grace Baptist Church and preached here for the first time, the New Testament version of this verse was on the back wall of the auditorium. And so for our cornerstone, I don't know if you have seen it, we have our new cornerstone installed on the new building out here. And so this is the verse that we have on the cornerstone, tying Pastor Hovestreit's ministry and my ministry together on the foundation of God's word in this place. That the foundation of Grace Baptist Church is this right here. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. One of my favorite things in the world is this. So when the Bible in the New Testament and much of the Old Testament, when it was written down, it would have been written on papyrus, papyrus. And so what papyrus is, it's, it's these weeds that grow along the river, and they take and flatten them out, mash them together, they dry them out, and then they write on them. Now you can imagine that doesn't last very long. So that means that the original papyri that the Bible was written on, we don't have those anymore. They're gone. Here's the good news. God knew that was going to happen. He wrote, the grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Those original writings, they may have faded into oblivion, but the word of God stands forever and we can hold it in our hands. Isn't that a blessing? Because the medium is not the important thing. The words are the important thing. And God himself has promised to preserve them. They are pure words, they are preserved words, and they are permanent words. These are the words that God has promised to give us. Praise God. This last verse demonstrates the brevity of everything around us. In the midst of all this decay, God's word remains. You can trust it with your life. Isn't that awesome? Amen. I like this. They're precious words. And I guess the question is, are they precious to you? Psalm 119.47 says, And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved. Do you love God's word? Is God's word precious to you? When we spend time in God's words, they become ever more precious to us. Not only are they precious, but they're preeminent. The Bible says in Psalm 138.2, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. 
For thou hast magnified thy word above. What are those next three words? Everyone. What does it say? All thy name. Does God care about his name? Part of the Ten Commandments, right? God really cares about his name. But the Bible says that he has magnified his word above all his name. It's interesting. Those of us who believe that God has given us the preserved word of God, sometimes people call us Bible worshipers. Bible worshipers. Well, okay. Uh, There was a preacher in the 1800s. His name was Alexander Haldane. And he was a part of the Scottish aristocracy, and he got saved and became a Bible teacher. And he wrote a book on the inspiration of the scriptures. And he talks about that accusation of being a bibliolatrist. And he was accused of that because he was fighting against that German higher criticism, that modernism of the 1800s. And he said the greatest bibliolatrist was Jesus Christ. And it is written, was the only answer he deigned give to the apostate spirit. So when Satan challenged him, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. He didn't say, I have said, I have said. He said, it is written, it is written. That's the authority that we build everything on. It is the word of God. They are preeminent words. You cannot have a biblical theology without a Bible. So it's very important that we understand that he's magnified his word above all thy name. Call us bibliolatrists. Call us Bible worshipers. That's fine. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You cannot worship Jesus without worshiping the word. You can't do it. How could we ever overemphasize the importance of the word of God? You know how important God's name is to him. He wrote one of the Ten Commandments to make sure we understand. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Some of you may recognize this text. This is from our book, Why Baptist, that Dalton and I wrote. According to Psalm 138.2, God, according to Psalm 138.2, has placed more importance on his word than in his name. Imagine that. The Bible is our sole authority. Now, you're going to want to look up these words, these verses in your Bible, because what we're going to do is we're going to have you read it in your Bible, and then I'm going to display it in one of the modern translations. So look at Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Just look toward the end of your Old Testament. Micah chapter 5. Now, I know at Christmas time. This passage is referenced quite a bit. So what we're looking at now is salvation and the modern versions. So this is the prophecy of how Jesus Christ would come. And so Micah 5, 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, have you ever heard this statement that there, is no, that there are no key doctrines changed in the modern translations? Have you ever heard someone say that? They're just easier to understand or they've been translated either with better scholarship or from better manuscripts. That's what you hear. But there are no foundational doctrines or no important doctrines that are changed. Let's see if that's true. So this is the NIV. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah. Now, remember, 
This is supposed to be easier to understand. What's easier, thousands or clans? Now, if you play Clash of Clans, you might think that. But just as far as language, thousands is easier. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose, look at this, origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, this is so important. Does Jesus Christ have an origin? Does he come from ancient times or from everlasting? Now, let me ask you a question. Is that an important distinction? Let me tell you how important it is. This is heresy. This is heresy. If Jesus Christ is not eternal, we cannot have eternal life. If Jesus Christ is a created being, then we have no hope. Jesus Christ is the creator. So it's vital that you understand that foundationally, this is an undermining of biblical doctrine. And this is where, you know, I'm kind of a black and white guy. But this is where I've got a real hard time with people who don't care about this. Again, how many of you think that's an important distinction right there? How can you say that's not important? No, it's vital. It's vital. It's foundational doctrine. How about this one? So look at Luke 9.55 in your Bible. Luke 9.55. Most of these are going to be either from the NASB or the NIV. But almost all of the modern Bibles read the same because they use the same underlying text. All right, so the Bible says, But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went into another village. How many of you are glad that Jesus Christ didn't come to, to destroy men's lives, but to save them? See, if we really understand what, how sinful we are, we would understand that when Jesus Christ came, he would have been perfectly justified to destroy our lives and would still be justified in doing that today. Let's look at what the NIV says. And the ESV reads this way, the RSV, and the New Living Testament. Okay, All of them read this way. So here's verses 55 and 56. This is the whole thing. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Is there anything missing there? So, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. How many of you think that's an important truth from the Scriptures? That's removed. It's gone. It's not there. Matthew 18.11. Let's look at it. You're going to see some consistency in what is removed. Matthew 18.11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Do you see that? All right. So let's read verse 10 in your King James Bible. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye? 
If a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? All right, so that's what the King James Bible says. Let's see what uh, the modern Bibles say. This is the NIV and the ESV, RSV, and the New American Standard Bible. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep, did I skip anything? That's because verse 11 is not in the NIV. In the NASB, they put brackets on it and say that it's not supposed to be there. The ESV, RSV, it's not there. It's so important that you understand the significant doctrine that is missing. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How many of you think that's an important passage? You glad that he came to save you because you were lost. And if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone tonight, you're lost. And Jesus Christ came to save you. He came to seek you and to save you. Why? Because according to the book of Romans, no man seeketh after God. Jesus Christ had to come and seek after us. He loves you and he wants you to be saved. This is in God's word and it's, it's a crime to remove it. And that's removed from the modern translations. Look with me at John six forty seven. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Now, how many of you think that's an important passage in the Bible? Have you ever heard that passage before? Let's see how the modern Bibles deal with that. So this is the NASB and the ESV. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. Is there anything important that's missing there? You know, there are a lot of people that have faith. There are a lot of, have you seen the back of a, of a semi you know, attend the church of your choice or whatever. I don't remember seeing that. No, attend the church that preaches the Bible. This right here, there has to, our faith has to have an object. And that object is Jesus Christ. So again, people say that there's nothing important removed. I think that's pretty important. Look at the next one. Mark chapter 10 and verse 24. If you look at verse 23, And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And man, isn't that true? It is very difficult for wealthy people to have faith in something other than their own accomplishments. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Look at the next verse. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Why? Because all through the Old Testament, material blessing, wealth, was the sign of God's approval on someone's life. So they they had a really hard time understanding this passage. And his disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? So again, Jesus is clearing that up. If you're trusting in your money, it's very hard to get saved because you can't buy your way into heaven. How many of you see that's the clear teaching of Scripture? All right, so let's look at the next passage here. So here's the NIV, the ESV, and then NASB. I'm going to read this and see if, it, if there's anything missing. Follow along in your Bible. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Is it hard to enter the kingdom of God? No, you've got to have the faith of a little child. I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I believe. It is not hard to go to heaven. Jesus did the hard part. Do you see how this fits in with all of the works-based faiths? You know, there are churches all around our city that teach, yes, you have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to be baptized. You have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to maintain good works. If you don't maintain good works, then you are not saved. You can't go to heaven. If you do this, if you cut your hair a certain way, if you wear makeup a certain way, if whatever, you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven if you do those things. All of those are works. And the Bible says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy, he saved us. It's not hard to go to heaven. This is heresy, folks. How many of you see that this is heresy right here? It's a changing of the word of God. And it's not that I like the King James better. I had somebody say that. I know you like the King James better. Well, I do like the King James better, but only because it's true. Really important that we understand how significant these changes are. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Look at it in your Bible. I want you to see how subtle these changes can be and the significant differences these subtle changes make. All right, so 2 Corinthians 11.3 in your King James Bible. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So in the early church, what happened was the gospel was the preaching of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's very simple. How many of you believe that that's simple? He died, that, how that, he, was, he died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's a very simple message. Here's less simple. That you have to believe to be saved and then you have to be baptized and then you have to speak in tongues and then you have to maintain good works. So which is more simple, the first one or the second one? Clearly. Clearly, that's the simplicity that's in Christ. And Satan and and, and the Apostle Paul feared that Satan would beguile them and move them away from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. Let's see what the modern translations do with this. So here's the NIV. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's nothing like it. That you would be uh, beguiled through his subtlety. That you'd be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It's either simple or it's corrupt. Is that the clear teaching of the scriptures? Led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's not the same statement. It's not the same concern. It's not the same message. It's a real problem. Ephesians 1, 12. That we should be to the praise. Go ahead and look in your Bible so you can have it in yours. Ephesians 1 and verse 12. This verse is really important when we're dealing with Calvinism. So Calvinism is that teaching that God chose some people for heaven and some people for hell. I want to show you
couple of things here. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So how many of you see some time words in those verses? And that's one of the key ways to understand your Bible, to look for time words. That we should be to the praise of his glory, who first, is first a time word? Who first trusted in Christ. So let me show you what happens here, and then I'm going to show you in another translation. So follow along in your Bible. This is the NIV. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Those are completely different statements. It's not even clear. It's very interesting. We're told that the NIV is easier to understand than the King James. And I suppose in some places it is, but not here. Not here. It changes the teaching of the Word of God. So look back at your Bible on that text, and I want you to see something in verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So all of these characteristics that come before, that we'd be predestinated unto the adoption of children, that we'd have redemption through his blood, that we would be, um, that we would attain an inheritance, all of those are characteristics that are true of anyone who first trusts in Christ. Look at how the doctrine has changed in the modern translation in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Was Paul the first to hope in Christ? No, Paul talks about all those who were in Christ before him. Who was Paul persecuting? He was persecuting people that were in Christ before him. This is not theologically correct. It's not etymologically correct. The the translation of the words is not correct. And theologically, it's certainly incorrect. So it's a real problem when people take their doctrine from these modern translations. So you are not included in Christ when you heard. You heard and then you believed. How can they hear without a preacher? Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The Bible is very clear on the order of these things, and this text destroys it. Now I want you to notice something. Look at your Bible again in that same passage. So look at verse 14. So you were sealed at the end of verse 13 with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory so here's what happens you hear the gospel you trust in that you believe you're saved and he seals you with that holy spirit of promise and that sealing of the holy spirit that's that earnest that's that guarantee like the earnest money you put down on a house That's that guarantee that when Jesus Christ returns, that that you are going to be that purchased possession. He's going to redeem that from the earth. And that happens at the rapture. Right? So we're sealed until the rapture when he takes us out of this place. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Oh, with me on this. Are you with me on this? Let me read to you the way that the Calvinist Bible, the ESV, does that. So... Let me read to you verses 11 through 14. So follow along in your Bible. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. No, He comes back to possess us. He comes back to receive us, to redeem us from the earth. So here's the theology. Remember, what the Calvinist teaches, most of the Calvinists who believe in a post-millennial return of Christ, that we establish the kingdom, we make this world a place good enough for Jesus Christ to return to, and he gives us the inheritance. Where we know what the Bible says is that the world is going to continue to get worse and worse until Jesus Christ is done. The last Gentile gets saved. We're raptured out of here. We have seven years of tribulation. Then we come back with Jesus Christ to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. They completely abuse that teaching in the ESV. Why? Because they have to change the Bible to match their theology. When what they need to do is allow the word of God to change their theology. It's, it's, it's amazing what they do with the scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.3. Is the gospel important? I quoted this passage a minute ago. Let's start reading in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Now let me ask you a question. Is the way that Christ died important for our salvation? Could he have drowned and been our Savior? No, he had to be whipped, he had to be pierced, he had to be nailed to a cross. He, his, all of his bones had to look at him. All of his bones had to be out of joint. All of that is what was required for our salvation, according to Psalm chapter 22, according to Isaiah chapter 53. To be the fulfillment of the promise, the way that Jesus Christ died is vital for our salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Right? That precious blood of Jesus had to be shed. He could not drown. The way that he died is vital. So let's follow along. Let me read this for you in the NIV. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now notice how that, that's not an italics. Those are not words that were added for understanding. Those are the words of God preserved in the text. And they've removed that vital portion of the gospel message. Is there a more important passage on the gospel message itself than 1 Corinthians 15? I would say no. It's vital to our understanding of what the gospel is, according to the scriptures. But they're not that concerned with the scriptures, so they just take that out. Look at Colossians 1.14. I put these in this order for a specific reason. 
how that, that's the way that Jesus Christ died. You say, well, that's in other parts of the Bible. You, you don't have to have it in that one particular spot. Well, let's see what it says here. Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, let me ask you a question. I know you get tired of raising your hands, but it helps me to have you participate. How many of you think that's an important statement on salvation? All right, let's see what the modern translations do. Here's the NIV. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is there anything important missing there? How can they consistently remove that substantial doctrine? It's heresy. Go on. Look at 1 John 1, 7. Now remember 1 John, one of the purposes for which it was written was to fight the doctrine of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is this teaching that you have this higher understanding of God, and it denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus Christ. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Are you all with me on that? All right, so here's 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Let's look at the NIV. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's a different statement. It's a different statement. They take Christ out of that statement. All right, look at uh, John 3.16. Anyone ever heard this verse before? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, how many of you are thankful that you can believe in the only begotten Son of God? Let's see what the modern Bibles do to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, is Jesus God's one and only son? Look at John chapter 1. Verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So here's the problem. If Jesus is his one and only son, then we can't become sons. That only begotten, it's vital. It's vital. Jesus is the only person that ever came into the world in a human body the way that he did. He's his only begotten son. He's the only begotten God, the Bible says in another place. He is it. He's it. It's vital that we understand that. All right? Then, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Anybody here saved? Are you sure? Are you, so, let's see if we learn anything here that's important. All right? 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it is the power of God. So any of you, you believed in, in Jesus Christ through the word of God, through the preaching of the word of God, and you're saved, you know that you're saved. Let's see what the modern versions do with this. 
For the message of the cross, notice it's not preaching. It's a message. You see how preaching is foolishness to the world? For the preaching, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want you to notice the consistency of the modern translations. The Bible makes it very clear that we are saved, not that we are being saved. The Bible makes it very clear that this is something that happened. You know what's good? Being saved is hard. It's that consistent teaching that allows it to be taught in a Roman Catholic system. It can be taught in any works-based system. But this will not work. This will not work if you believe that when a person is saved, they are saved forever based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That I am as saved now as I will ever be. In eternity, I will not be more sure of salvation than I am right now. It's vital that we understand the distinction there. Let's look at another. All right, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And you know that this is one of the most important passages in the Bible. Second Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him, that's talking about Christ, sin uh, to be sin for us who knew no sin. When we talk about Jesus Christ bearing in his body the sins of the world. This is the passage that teaches that. It's very important. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Very important. I want you to notice a difference. And remember, these verses are in this lesson, in this order for a reason. Here's the NIV. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I am not becoming the righteousness. I have been made righteous. I stand before you today clean in Jesus Christ. In my flesh, there's no good thing, but I am a new man in Jesus Christ. Where does it say that? Look at verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, what's that next word? All things are become New, all of those things, they have become new. This right here, we might become the righteousness. No, Jesus Christ did it. Do you see even the difference between the way the word become is used in our Bible in 17 and in the NIV in verse 21? Might become is so different than all things are become new. Very important that you understand these distinctions. Look at Acts five or look at Acts fifteen, nineteen. Again, remember, these things are in this order in this lesson for a reason. See these these mistakes that we're identifying in the text, how is it that they are so consistently changing these things through the Bible? Do you think possibly someone had an agenda? for a different form of salvation than what we have in our Bible? All right, so Acts 15, look at verse 19. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Are turned to God. How many of you who are saved, you you are turned to God from devils. You are turned to God from false doctrine. You are turned to God from whatever else it was that you were trusting in. Let's see what the modern Bibles do. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Is salvation a process or is salvation a transaction? See, it's a transaction where I give God my sin and he gives me his righteousness. It's an exchange. It's a transaction that happens at a point in time. It's not a process. Do you see how this will fit with Roman Catholic theology? This will fit with any works-based faith. But it will, not, it will not work with salvation by grace through faith alone at a point in time that lasts for eternity. This doctrine is vital. Look at 2 Corinthians 2.15. We're trying to get the temperature right in here. How many of you, this is too warm in here tonight? Not too many. How many of you are comfortable this evening? All right. How many of you are too cold? Okay. Eat some sugar. Second Corinthians 2.15. All right. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved... And in them that are perished. Notice that there are two types of people here. Those that are saved and those that, that, that perish. Remember, the Bible makes it very clear that he that believeth shall be saved and he that believeth not is condemned already. You're not waiting for condemnation. If you're not saved, you are already, you are currently under the condemnation of God. If you are saved, you're not waiting for salvation. You are saved. You're waiting for the salvation of the body, but your spirit is already as saved as it will ever be. So here, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Look what the NIV says. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Are we being saved or are we saved? We're saved. We are saved. Are, how many of you are noticing a pattern here? And people will tell you, so the next time someone tells you that there are no doctrines changed in the modern translations, you can tell them, you can either call them a liar, which I don't recommend, or you can just say, let me show you some verses, and you tell me if these things are important. Salvation and the modern versions. Anybody learn something tonight? Be honest with me. This will be the last time I make you raise your hand for at least five minutes. How many of you think there were some important things changed in those Bibles tonight? I don't know how we have gotten to a place in Christianity where these are considered unimportant. See, your Bible translation is only important if the words matter. If, you're just, if, if you just believe that the Bible becomes the word of God where it speaks to you and you are the linchpin of truth, then it won't matter. But if you believe in objective truth, that is truth that exists outside of you, that that truth exists whether you were ever born or not, then those words matter. And here at Grace Baptist Church, as long as I am the pastor... As long as this is a Bible-believing church, we in the English language are going to stand on the King James Bible. It's not a secondary issue. It's a primary issue for us. That's who we are. Sometimes people say, well, you're just too extreme. You're just too extreme. I'm not saying you're not saved. If you, if, I'm not saying that you have to have a King James Bible to be saved. 
I'm not saying you have to have a King James Bible to go to heaven. I'm not saying you have to have a King James Bible to understand certain things. What I am saying is we looked at some verses tonight that are very different. Those verses can't both be the Word of God. They can't both be the Word of God because they teach different things. I believe that we had the Bible ever since God preserved it and began compiling it for us in the early church. He preserved it in the churches so that we can hold it in our hands today. This is not an extreme position. It's a simple faith position. Let me finish with this. Our position is mocked in Christianity as the position of uneducated people. That we're just ignorant. If it was good enough, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. That's how they mock us with it. When the simple fact of the matter is, we here at Grace Baptist Church have studied this subject way more than probably any pastor you've ever had unless they're a King James church. Why? Because we actually care about this subject. And we're not listening to the siren call of the world that says the words don't matter, the words don't matter, the words don't matter. It's very important that we understand that this is a studied and reasoned position, but this position is not based on our scholarship. It's based on our faith in God. Do you have faith in God or do you have faith in Bible scholars? See, there are basically three positions among Orthodox Christians, okay, conservative Christians. There are three positions. Either the critical text position, that's the text that is not settled. They're changing it every year. Their Bible text changes every year. So that's the position of, say, Moody Bible Institute or Wheaton College or um, John MacArthur. That critical text position, they do not believe that they have a settled text of the Word of God. That's the critical text position. There's another position. It's called the Textus Receptus position. So the critical text, their manuscripts go back to Alexandria in Egypt. There are very few manuscripts that agree with their position. The Textus Receptus, that means received text, that text is based on manuscripts going all the way back to Syria, to Antioch in Syria. So sometimes it's called the Antiochian text. Sometimes it's called the Byzantine text. That text form has been collated into, into six different types of texts that are called the Textus Receptus. There are six different versions of that text. People that we would know, they would hold to the, the text that's printed by the Trinitarian Bible Society. Some of you have a Bible that was printed by the Trinitarian Bible Society. They're a really wonderful organization that translates the Bible into languages around the world. But that TR, that Textus Receptus, that's called the TR position. We have the King James position. And all three of those are based on faith. Either you have faith in the scholars behind the critical text, or you have faith in one of the TRs, or you have faith in the King James Bible. It doesn't matter which of those positions you have. It is a faith-based position. Are you with me on this? So then, after you decide where you're going to place your faith, then your scholarship comes in, and you say, well, is this, a, is this the right place for me to put my faith? 
how has God promised to work? How has God worked through history to maintain his words? The first position, the critical text position, he didn't. They don't believe they have them. So John MacArthur, several years ago, two or three years ago, finished preaching through the New Testament. He's not done preaching, but he finished his series preaching through the New Testament, and he finished it with the Gospel of Mark. In his Bible, the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark aren't there. And so his last sermon on Mark was how those verses not being in the Bible give him faith. We looked at one of those verses in our Sunday school class. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. How many of you believe that's in the Bible? That verse is not in John MacArthur's Bible. It's not there. I have faith that God preserved those words. We have those words quoted in the early church fathers way before any manuscript that anyone has ever seen. So you either have faith that God preserved his words, or you really don't have faith that you have all of God's words, or you believed he preserved them in a Greek text. But at some point you're trusting someone, I believe that God has preserved his words in the English Bible. I believe that in English God has preserved his words in the King James Bible. It's all a matter of faith. Now, if you have technical questions, we can handle the technical questions too. But it doesn't matter how technical your question gets. It all comes down to faith. Who gave us the words? God did. Did he preserve those words? Yes. How did he promise to preserve those words? Through the churches. Did he promise to preserve those words in any one language? No. Did he promise to preserve the New Testament only in Greek? No. He promised to preserve those words in the churches. So let me just ask you a couple of questions and we'll be done. This will help you to think about it. Here's what people will say. Yes, I use the King James Bible but I don't believe in dual inspiration. That's, that's the statement. Somebody said that to me in the lobby uh, last Sunday or Sunday before last. Yes, I believe in the King James, but I don't believe in dual inspiration. What they're saying is that those of us who hold to the King James Bible, we believe that the King James translators were inspired in the same way that the original Bible writers were. Have I ever said that one time? No. Here's why. The Bible never said that God inspired the writers. God inspired his words. How many of you see there's a difference there? The writers are not inspired. The words are inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It doesn't say all men wrote down by inspiration of the word. It says holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But when it's talking about the inspiration of the scripture, it's talking about the words themselves. So, foundational truth. God inspired his words, not the men. All right, so let me ask you guys a question. Did God inspire his words? Did God inspire his words? Yes. All right. Did God promise to preserve his words? Is it possible to accurately translate those words into another language? People act like that's the hardest thing in the world. Now, you cannot translate the Bible into pidgin, the pidgin language. 
There aren't enough words in that language to translate the Bible. So multiculturalism messes us up. All languages are not the same. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. You can only translate the Bible accurately into another language where that receptor language has the capacity to communicate those words. Are you with me? But are there languages that can communicate those words? Yes. Is it possible to translate words from one language to another? Yes. Are there times when that's difficult? Yes. Sometimes you actually have to create a new word. Because that word doesn't exist in that language. In the King James Bible, what they did was they transliterated those words. They would take that Greek or Hebrew word and just put an English letter next to it. And that created a new word. The technical term is neologism. It's a new word. People create new words all the time. All the time. There's nothing wrong with doing that. So here, so here we go. Did God inspire his words? Did he promise to preserve those words? Did he keep that promise? Is it possible to accurately translate from one language to another? Then what's the problem? So here's the, when I say I hold God's inspired, preserved words in my hand, That freaks a lot of people out because this is not a Greek New Testament. It's not Hebrew. It's not Aramaic. If it's a word that's translated into another language and it's the same word, it's still the inspired word of God. Do you understand how faithless these people are? I hold God's word in my hands. If you have a King James Bible right now, you are holding God's words in your hands. You can trust it. You can believe it. You can teach it. You can stand on it. Hallelujah. That's our position. That's who we are. And as a part of this launch series, we need to lay down some things here at Grace Baptist. This is not going to change. We believe that the King James Bible is God's preserved word in English. Amen? Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your salvation. Thank you that your salvation is revealed to us in the Scriptures.